in a most unfortunately timed press release. Just as congregations all over the world prepared to celebrate the birth of the Christian movement on the day of Pentecost, the Pew Research Center unceremoniously informed U.S. churches that we are dying. They reported that between 2007 and 2014, the Christian share of the U.S. population fell from 78.4% to 70.6%, driven mainly by declines among mainline Protestants and Catholics. Evangelicals are in decline, too, just at a slightly slower pace. All the while, the religiously unaffiliated grew from 16.1% to an impressive 22.8%. A terminal diagnosis on your birthday is a cruel irony. As with any diagnosis of such gravity, we've been asking all of the typical questions since we heard the news. How long do we have? Is there anything we can do? Perhaps there's an experimental treatment we can try in order to reverse the prognosis. Week by week, my inbox and social network news feeds flood with articles addressing these questions, authors trying desperately to offer some hope for the future of dying churches, or a strategy to attract millennials, or tips for revamping worship, or ideas for creative marketing. There's a whole cottage industry in publishing books for pastors charged by their congregations or judicatory authorities to grow the church or to attract young families. Some just pray for a miracle. But every time the numbers come back, the dismal prognosis persists. We've tried everything. Nothing seems to be working. We're not sure there are any other options left to try. And all of this has me a little concerned. I'm not concerned about the numbers or the survival of churches or the strategies that might keep the doors from closing. What I'm really concerned about is just what the inordinate amount of attention we've been paying to saving our churches from decline is doing to us in the long run. Sometimes when a person gets a terminal diagnosis, they weigh the options between focusing their precious time and energy on aggressive treatment in hopes of living a longer life, or alternatively, focusing their energy upon the quality of life and the time they have left. Institutions have this option, too. Lately, I've been wondering what it might be like for churches if we accepted the fact that our institutional lives, just like our individual lives, sometimes come to an end. And if we accepted this, then then just maybe we could stop talking about it so much. It's not that we should ignore the statistics because we don't like the reality they point to. It's just that the statistics can only tell us so much. The statistics aren't the whole of the church's story. In fact, they don't say much at all about the overarching narrative in which we are taking part. Uh, That great poet, farmer, environmentalist Wendell Berry says, quote, the significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part, 
end quote. And the overarching narrative of churches these days is being ambushed by the story of our demise. Statistics like those in the Pew study have a lot to say about the social trends of church attendance these days, but it's hard for the statistics to convey what it's like to get caught up in the movement of a congregation's life, even in a precarious era like ours. We need to tell stories in order to convey that sense. Similarly, historians can tell us a lot about the earliest days of the Christian movement, the social conditions, the early church gatherings, the rituals, and all of that. But folks had to tell stories to convey how it felt to be caught up in it. Pentecost is a time to return to the story and try to feel something of the chaos and potential and confusion and expectant hopes of getting caught up in the Christian movement at its very genesis. This morning, just like every year about this time, we return to the origin story. We celebrate the first century birth of a chaotic Christian movement sitting in our 21st century churches where we have just received what sounds like a terminal diagnosis. Yet this is how our story begins. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head or tail of any of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What is going on here? Others joked, they're drunk on cheap wine. If, as Wendell Berry says, the significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part. This is our story. It begins with, they were all together in one place when without warning there was a sound of a gale force wind and no one could even tell where it came from and like wildfire the spirit spread through their ranks leaving everyone's heads spinning. But then the story continues like this. A white congregation in an urban city spoke a resolute no to white flight. They said that they would stay in the city they had been called, uh, that they had called home for all these years to serve those in their com- community. But many of the devout were confused, wondering what in the world they were thinking, and the numbers began shrinking and fast, until all that was left was a dismally small number of congregants. They wondered to themselves if they would even survive another year. Those around them said they've got to be crazy if they think they can grow a church in that location. And many, many years later, they were a thriving church with a penchant for the work of racial justice deeply embedded within their congregational narrative, continuing to propel them forward in the work of justice in their community. And the story goes, a congregation deliberates and discerns and debates and decides that the only way to really love their lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender neighbors is to become fully welcoming and affirming of LGBTQ people, not in 2015 when the prevailing image of LGBT people is the affluent white gay couple, 
But in 1983, when the prevailing public image of LGBT folks was gay men dying of a mysterious, incurable disease that no one, not even hospitals or the government, would treat with any compassion. And the story continues. An historic, big, steeple church refuses to allow the brick and mortar and stone they own to become protected shrines to their past, and instead they open the doors of their historic building for creative partnerships with nonprofits and community groups that are desperate for affordable space to carry out their good work. And the synergistic, symbiotic relationship between the congregation and these nonprofits creates a frenetic energy for meaningful work in their community that neither of them could have imagined alone. And it goes a small congregation musters bravery beyond what their numbers suggest possible in order to stand up to their denomination's unjust practices, in order to support the equity of women in the church or the inclusivity of LGBTQ people or to take a defiant stand on an array of other concerns of justice refusing to uphold an oppressive ecclesial status quo through silent complicity. And and the story goes a church passes the offering plate an extra time on Sunday morning so that they can send the money hundreds of miles away as bail money for arrested activists on the front lines of racial justice demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri. And the story goes, a congregation allows their own needs for capital improvements or a new sound system or musical instruments to be put on hold, perhaps indefinitely because their community is in desperate need of a group home for adults with developmental disabilities or an addiction recovery facility, realizing that if they don't build it, no one will. These are all churches I know. These are the stories of the Christian movement in which I've been caught up, stories that call me forward in the narratival flow from Pentecost to the present. And I'll bet you have stories like this too. They may be buried deep in your institutional memory, but they're worth digging up and sharing on a day like Pentecost. Because embedded in these narratives is a lingering sense of your own congregational call that can get lost in the anxiety over statistics. One commentator says that the Greek term that the book of Acts uses to describe the people's reaction on the day of Pentecost could appropriately be rendered by saying that they were confused, in an uproar, beside themselves, undone, blown away, thoroughly disoriented, completely uncomprehending. Pentecost story in the book of Acts is a story of disruption. Disruption of the status quo Disruption of the security of knowing what comes next. Disruption of any semblance of a safe, secure, sane journey. Disruption like a mighty wind, gale force. Disruption that spreads like wildfire. If, as Wendell Berry says, the significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by the understanding of the story in which we are taking place. This, this is our story. 
It begins with they were all together in one place when without warning there was a sound of a gale force wind and no one could even tell where it came from. And like wildfire, the spirit spread through their ranks, leaving everyone's head spinning. And no one in their right mind would end a story with such a vigorous and dynamic beginning with a final sentence that reads, And then between 2007 and 2014, the Christian share of the population fell from 78.4% to 70.6%. We have a choice to make this Pentecost. We are not guaranteed a future. No church is. So aside from that fact and all of the statistics that demonstrate it, How will you understand the story in which you are taking part? A church whose members marched side by side with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma, Alabama. The church that has sheltered the world's political refugees who were vulnerable to violence in their native land. The very first church in your city to fully embrace lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in your midst as persons of dignity and worth and equal standing before the divine. A church whose members were involved in founding nearly every social justice group in your community. That's you if you didn't recognize it. How will you as a congregation, continue the story of Pentecost. What I'm learning from the convergence of Pentecost and the Pew statistics and congregations like this one is this. Every now and then, we need to put the security of our institutional life on the line for something we really believe in. At least once every decade or so, Churches need to do something so audacious, so risky, that it can still be said, folks in the community talked back and forth about that church, confused, saying, what's going on here? And others joked, they must be drunk.